You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where, honestly, I don't feel really any debt of thanks to the antagonist in this book. Welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comic books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Guy Gardner, again, is nowhere to be seen because, yeah, as I've told you before, his series only ran 44 issues and, well, it's done with. But I am getting to cover one of my favorite Green Lanterns in Kyle Rayner, Except this time out, he's got a really, really lame villain to fight. If you weren't around for last issue, where Thomas DJ came on and discussed the, well, the meeting with Kyle and his estranged mother and further developments in the breakup of him and Donna Troy, one of the main villains that was introduced there was an artificial intelligence that was begun at Star Labs, that in this issue forms into essentially a horrible ripoff of those robots from Chopping Mall. Yes, the, uh, I want to say the mid-80s B-movie exploitation director, his name's Jim Wynorski. He did such wonderful movies as Deathstalker 2 and Return of the Swamp Thing. So, yeah, there's a quality pedigree behind him. And you can tell that the quality of the robot, uh, probably was much better than what we got in this comic. It's just a goofy freaking idea. And again, one of Ron Mars' failed attempts at trying to make an interesting villain for Kyle Rayner. But we do also have some better stuff in the Green Lantern Quarterly book, or the Green Lantern Core Quarterly book. In issue number two, we're going to be covering another issue with Alan Scott, another issue with Nort, a story about a Green Lantern Grizzly Adams, a story about a rookie Green Lantern, and a story about Muppet Bugs. Yeah, they're not all winners this time out. But the Nort and Alan Scott story are pretty fun, and, well, you get more Kyle and Donna goodness, so I'd say we're probably batting 500 this episode. Hate to spoil lead, but yeah, it's there's going to be some things I'm going to have words to say about. However, we also have some wonderful things like letters to read from you wonderful listeners. We've got a couple of promos to play, a podcast that I know you guys will love. But first, after all that, we'll get back and we will start in on Man or Machine, the Green Lantern issue dealing with the Machine Messiah. And if you can't tell, I'm kind of stretching out this promo because the song's going kind of long. Thank goodness I didn't pick the Yes song, Machine Messiah, from like their album Drama because that's like a 10-minute song and I have to be rambling for that amount of time. I hope you like Sticks. I mean, I mean, it's not their best song, but... 
Yeah, I, I still have a little while to go. So, uh, you listen to the other two True Freaks podcasts? Because you should. In fact, this next promo will probably be for a two True Freaks podcast. Go ahead and listen to it. You'll enjoy it. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email, and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow! Put Cap's shield there. <laughs> anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! Watch out for the repulsor! Ow! Oh! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die. They just get reassembled and sent to another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover and who might stop by. So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and... Oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <clears throat> hey, wait a minute. This is the book of the Vashanti. <sighs> Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. The Bronze Age of Comics, an era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we are back. And before we get into the thing that is Greenlander number 89, we've got some good things from you listeners that have written in with emails. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first letter this time out comes from Scott Davis. Uh, the Canadian listener, hopefully more than one Canadian listener, but he is the most frequent writer who is a Canadian listener. So he writes in with the title, Guy vs. Hal in Red Lanterns number 24. He says, Sean, I saw this panel in Red Lanterns 24 today, and I had to send it to you right away. As a member of the Red Lanterns, Guy one-ponches the snot out of Hal Jordan. It reminds me of the issues we were viewing on the show. To me, this looks like Guy finally gets his revenge for the beating for his beating at the hands of Parallax. Check out the blood spewing from Hal's busted mouth in this panel. Parallax, meet Guy Gardner's fist. Anyway, I thought you enjoyed it. And it's a nice piece of art. It is, um, I don't know who's doing, I guess, uh, this guy named Alessandro Vitti is doing the uh, artwork in Red Lanterns. Haven't heard of him, but the artwork's good. However, the idea of Guy Gardner as a Red Lantern 
I think it's going to kind of wear thin. And I don't know. Like I've said, I haven't been reading the current issues, but I'm thinking if I can find them in the cheapy bins, I might start picking them up. I've heard good things from other podcasters, uh, especially about Jeff Johns's run on Green Lantern. So maybe I'll give it a shot probably after I get done with all the podcasting stuff. But that's all from Scott. Thanks for writing in, Scott. I appreciate it. Our next letter, it didn't have any subject title, but it's from Robert Ward, and he writes in saying, Dear Sean, it's been a while since I last sent an email, and I thought I would hop on and tell you that I'm still listening and still enjoying every second of your shows. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I don't know what you mean about, oh, the other show. Yes, the, uh, the other just one of the projects. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you're enjoying that one as well. Uh, He continues saying, in a previous email, I believe, I mentioned how your goal to educate on fun comics was at least a partial success, since I didn't own any guy comics, but you made me want to. Well, I finally did. Oh, cool. It probably wasn't my smartest move, but I ordered a lot of Guy Gardner comics from eBay. My nearest LCS is hours away. Ugh, that sucks. Sure, but it lacks about every... I'm sorry, it says it lacks about 15 every other issues, but I can't be more excited. It may be a little while before I can get all the issues I need before I can start reading them properly, but I just wanted to let you know that I finally started collecting comic books, and my first acquirers are Guy Gardner. Good job. Well, cool. I hope you got some of the Bo Smith issues in there. That Those are always awesome reads. He finishes it up saying, I can't wait to collect the run so I can get even more comics, specifically US 1, mm-hmm. the GL arc, and Guy and his Nord, and anything with Bo Smith's name on it. Amazing interview, by the way. Well, thank you again. I love doing the interview with Bo Smith, and the, again, I'll keep harping on it as long as I can. Bo Smith is completely and totally awesome. He finishes up saying, keep up the good work and long live retread, the dirty, smelly, hippie Robert. Uh, retread. He's a sad, 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 miserable character. If there is one person in comics that I wish would just go away. Thankfully, he didn't stay around. It's it's retread. Yeah, awesome. Her next letter comes from a man who some say, when he shaved himself for his surgery, was able to form the hair from the shavings into 17 woolen sweaters, which he donated to charity. All we know is, he's called Luke Giaconetti. And if you haven't listened to Luke's uh, podcast about his surgery, check it out over at the Two True Freaks website. It's it's definitely an informative and very open and honest dealing with the uh, subject of Med's health. It was uh, impressive that Luke was able to do this and deliver it in such, well, a very reasoned and a very serious manner. It could have easily gone into jokiness, and he... He, he did a service, and I, I really appreciated the show, uh, probably because I went through the same sort of thing that Luke did. So uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to Two True Freaks and check out uh, Luke's podcast there. It was really good. But Luke writes in with the title, Fatality Round 2, Fight. He says, Sean, as Fatality continues a rampage, the big news from this episode has to be the return of Jon Stewart. It's hard to think about how in our post-Justice League cartoon environment, but John quote-unquote, went away for a long time. I think most people, even casual GL readers like me, remember John, but it wasn't until his star turn in the animated world that he really hit the big time. When I was getting into comics in the early 90s, the big GLs were Hal and Guy, and then Kyle once he debuted. John was never really part of the conversation, and even Alan Scott was more of an oh-yeah-I-remember-him sort of character, especially since Zero Hour had essentially pushed the JSA aside. Since one of the strengths of the GL concept is the variety of heroes who can wield the power, the return to prominence of John and Alan is a welcome development. I like the bit with Kyle having to fight hand-to-hand. This is the classic comic trope for any character who relies on technology or magic, or in the case of Green Lantern, magical technology, let's call a spade a spade, shall we? So I'm a little surprised that it took this long for it to pop up for Kyle. Of course, this makes me think of the classic subplot where Tony Stark asked Captain America to develop his hand-to-hand combat during the period when he was not wearing the armor. Gotta love it. Yeah, I remember... What was it? I want to say uh, Andy and Michael were talking about something in Captain America. I think it may have been when they did their Starenko episode, but they were talking about how Captain America 
basically could train anyone in like, oh, a couple of panels to be a master fighter. I think they mentioned doing that with Bucky, or not with Bucky, with uh, Rick Jones, who basically put on the Bucky costume and then, you know, after Cap gave him a few hours worth of fighting, he was out there tackling baddies with Cap. So, yeah, well, I guess if you're Captain America, you can train pretty much anyone to fight. I'll give him that. Lou continues, over in Faster Friends, the artist which stands out most to me is Bart Sears. Sears is best remembered by me for his monthly column in Wizard Magazine back in the day, called Brutes and Babes. As one would expect, this was an art tutorial column where Sears would run through the basics of superhero art. Now, considering that at the time a lot of the folks really, really disliked Sears stuff, it was always fun to see who would praise the column in the letters pages and who would bury it. Personally, I tend to like Sears stuff, but he does have a tendency to go a little over the top from time to time. Always thought he would fit well on a sword and sorcery book. Yeah, my knowledge of Sears' work pretty much stems from, I think, the Justice League Europe book, when he took that over, oh god, I want to say around issue 6 or so of it. I don't think he was the original artist on it. Maybe I'm misremembering that, but I know he was doing art for the Justice League uh, Europe book, and... I really didn't have a problem with it. I think it wasn't as stylized as uh, uh, Kevin McGuire's art, but it was a good it was a good pairing for the book. So, well, there we go. Luke continues. Of course, Ron Lim's stuff always looks great. Poor fill-ins on Volume Three of Hawkwind, notwithstanding. Oh, sorry, Luke. Kind of a sore spot, I guess. As an aside, the sci-fi era of MST3K started out a little rough for one incredibly strange reason. Sci-Fi's, thankfully not Siffy's, executives at the time had to decree that all original programming had to have an overarching, ongoing storyline that progressed from episode to episode. The Best Brains crew said, well, okay, Mike and the bots will be stuck in space, so the plot continues. And that was not good enough. So that's why the impetus for the incredibly silly, ongoing story of the last three seasons, with the satellite of love moving from place to place and time to time until we get to the Castle Forester setting, at which point I think the network no longer cared about the ongoing stories. Personally, I'll always be fond of this era because we got back to the classic sci-fi and horror movies for a while, although we also did get Hamlet, proving that bad movies know no generic bounds. Ugh, that Hamlet was just bad. However, it did have voiceover work by Ricardo Multibon, so there's that. Plus, I was in college, Luke said, for the last couple of years, meaning that Saturdays were MST3K Day, where my friends and I would tape the broadcast and then watch it that night with the requisite pizzas and beer. Thanks again for the show, and looking forward to the next installment of The Fatality Story, Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. I appreciate you writing in, and uh, I think we're going to cut off emails right there. We've got a couple more uh, from Luke and Robert uh, coming up, but uh, we'll save those for next time. Let's go ahead and get into it. Into the story of Green Lantern versus one of the crappy chopping mall robots in Green Lantern number 89. Green Lantern 89 was cover dated August 1997 and released on June 4th, 1997. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics is where that info comes from. Cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Man and Machine. <sighs> Writer was Ron Mars, pencilers this time out were Daryl Banks and Joshua Hood, inker was Terry Austin and Derek Fisher, colorist was Pamela Rambo, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Eddie Briganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Leaping from his perch on a brownstone ledge, Cannoner, former member of the Y contingent, pounces on his enemy's cyber elite and prepares to ram his dagger into its cybernetic cranium. Sadly, or maybe fortunately, this book isn't about him, as we cut to Kyle Rayner sitting in his childhood bedroom going through his old comics. Kyle tosses the book by artist Lob Ryfield, wink, away, and as the comic hits the door, super hot former Wonder Girl Donna Troy walks in, marvels at Kyle's action figures, and then mentions that he needs to come out and make amends with his mother. Kyle disagrees, saying that his mom is still treating him like a child, and he'd rather just stay in his room and read his comics. Donna says tough noogie and drags the mopey Kyle out to dinner with his mom and her new boyfriend. On the way to pick up Mora's boyfriend, the trio passes by Kyle's old haunt, the Heretic Club, where Kyle catches a glimpse of his old friend Tyler. Kyle yells at his old mate, but gets no reply. 
Donna mentions that maybe they can try and hit up the club and his friend tomorrow as Maura pulls up to her boyfriend's workplace, Star Labs. Coincidentally, Dr. Hollis is not only Maura's current snuggle bunny, but is also the scientist that Kyle rescued in the last issue. Maura worries that Hollins might be in trouble again since he's supposed to be in the lab and they can't see the activity in the building. Kyle heads inside to check up on the doctor, and as he rounds the corner, Kyle sees the battered body of Hollins and runs toward it. The blood-stained scientist says that it killed two of his colleagues, and before Kyle can wonder who exactly Hollis is talking about, he's introduced to the Johnny Five wannabe... The Machine Messiah. Outside, Donna and Mora fret over the amount of time Kyle is spending in the lab. Mora thinks that Kyle is being irresponsible, but Donna tells her that since Kyle took on the mantle of Green Lantern, he's greatly matured, but is still unsure how to reach out to his mother. However, the conversation is interrupted by a massive explosion that rocks the duo in the car. Kyle flies out with the unconscious Hollins in tow and tells Donna he's going back in to unplug the anarchist AI. But before he can head back in, the machine messiah bursts through the wall like a human-killing Kool-Aid man. Kyle rings up a hoverer, Mazda 5, and whisks the two women in his life out of harm's way, but gets a flying fist punch the back for his troubles. The hit causes the vehicle to lose cohesion and drop Donna, Laura, and Hollins on a nearby rooftop, where a worried mother watches her son battle the bot. However, Donna reassures Mora that Kyle is in her little coin war as they watch the last lander lay into the automaton. Eventually, Kyle gets the upper hand by using his imagination and bringing up a boatload of wacky constructs to take on the machine messiah. Crisis averted, Kyle wraps up the tale at his mother's house, where Mara finally admits how proud she is of him. But the jubilation is interrupted by a strange phone call for Donna, one that leaves her shocked and weeping in Kyle's arms. Like I said in my opening monologue, this is another in a string of failed attempts to give Kyle a decent long-term villain. It's also the very sudden end to the relationship of Kyle and Donna for reasons that will be explained a little bit more next issue. They kind of leave off the issue with this phone call and Donna being really shocked and terrified, and if you don't know what's going on, we'll find out next week and we'll explain what's going on there, but... Essentially, it was a way to get Donna out of the book. I've heard tale that it was John Byrne wanting to have the Donna Troy character for himself to write in the Wonder Woman titles, but it definitely ended the Donna and Kyle relationship very quickly and in a not really in a not really organic manner. When Donna and Kyle got together, I thought that their the building of their relationship didn't come off as forced. It didn't come off as something put there by editorial that these two characters have to be together because we have a storyline to write for them. No, their characters developed their relationship throughout the book, and it came, like I said before, in an organic manner. Unfortunately, this doesn't feel that way at all. It feels forced. It feels like something that someone just wanted to take away the character from the book, and it's disappointing to me, but it's there, and we have to deal with it. Of course, we also have to deal with the Machine Messiah, so let's go ahead and take a look at some of my notes for the book. Of course, starting with the cover, we get, well, kind of an homage to that scene in The Marathon Man where, is it Lawrence Olivier uh, basically threatening Dustin Hoffman with dental surgery? Except this one is taken to quite an extreme, as Cow's got a bunch of things stuck in his mouth and tubes in his head it's a nice bit of artwork uh, but really pretty creepy i do think austin's work uh his line work on the mask looks really cool because it gives it a sort of well uh, a more cybernetic look uh that might also be because he's being probed by various machine on sundry things but it's a nice look Page one, I joked that the art here was by Lob Ryfield, and yeah, it is the obvious swipe at the sort of image X titled books of the time. 
the hero here is a multi-pouched, metal, or let's see, sorry, bulging, metal-armed, long-haired, one glowing-eyed cliche with a jagged dagger and a gun that looks like a stapler with a scope on it. It's obviously trying to emulate all the things that were really horrible about the 90s in a way to kind of make fun and say that, hey, look, we're not like this anymore. We're the new DC. But yeah, uh, it is definitely, definitely of its era. Page two, panel three. There's an onomatopoeia here, and it's a uh, FWAP. F-W-A-P is the comic. It's the door. I wonder if that sound didn't actually occur in Kyle's room like multiple times when he was in his teen years. There was probably a lot of flapping going on. Then on the same page, page six, you get more metatextual commentary as Kyle mentions that he wouldn't want to be a comics artist because, yeah, it's the 90s and he'd have to draw stuff like, well, Canoner. <sighs> page three, panel one, as Kyle, or I'm sorry, as Donna is looking at some of Kyle's action figures he's got there, he's got some really cool ones. One looks like a samurai figure from the uh, Super Friends show. Uh, it looks like there might be a Transformer back there, and it, there's sort of a weird, you know, Lex Luthor Falcon power armor mashup. It's kind of some weird Mego dolls. I, aside from the Samurai one, which definitely looks like Samurai from the Super Friends, some of them just look kind of generic, like they couldn't really get the licenses. Page four is Kyle and Don and his mom go driving by the Heretic Club. We get the subplot set up for the next issue. And yeah, there's another issue that we're going to have to be dealing with. Um, Kyle's earlier life. And we'll see how that goes. Then on pages five and six, and this is just a nitpick with me, but it seems now that Austin's come on the book that teeth are really accentuated. Throughout a lot of these panels, there's just big mouths full of teeth and it's just I maybe I just didn't notice it before but it just seems like people just are burying their teeth throughout all of these books it's unnerving then we move to page eight and yes the robot is definitely reminiscent of one of the robots from chopping mall I mean it's a lot larger but still it's that same sort of goofy design uh don't have much to say uh on page 12 panel one kyle as he's been blasted out of the star labs comes outside and finds that his mother's car is kind of overturned so he decides to make a flying construct car to get his mom and donna and holland out of the way or holland's out of the way that's probably not the best of ideas especially when they're going to be flying and it's being held together by your concentration which could at any moment be oh, disrupted by a blast from a robot that's attacking you? Uh, not the brightest move, Kyle. Then on page 14, we get the pseudoscience that the machine messiah is making the cars attack Kyle because of the computer chips in them. Right, so this means that auto companies in the DC universes have had automatic driving cars for over 15 years now. Man, I want to live in the DC universe. It would be so awesome to just get drunk and be able to drive into work. Ugh. Damn you, DC universe. Damn you, GM. Thanks, Obama. Then I don't really have any notes until page 19, which is a, it's a nice splash page of Kyle being an imaginative to uh, defeat the Machine Messiah. And he comes with a, with a variety of constructs, and he's got a... Electric blue Superman fighting. I mean, he's got a sort of, well, a very toy-like steel smashing with a hammer. There is Mongo in there. There's Guy Gardner in there. Adam Strange. It looks like a Joker with like a ray gun and a meat cleaver. Green Arrow. Maybe Green Arrow. It's got a pirate thing on its back. Uh, Starro's there. The ray's there. And then, of course, in the... uh bottom left-hand corner, there's uh, Wonder Girl in a, a really uncomfortable-looking pose. It looks like something's happening to her from behind. It's 
I just feel awkward and don't know how to explain it, but good artwork on the panel. I'll give it that. Oh, oh I guess I spoke too soon. I was looking at uh, page 20, panel 3. Here we get a uh, image of Guy and sort of a wacky sort of Guy Gardner thing. It's, I guess Cal feels that he, if he's imaginative, he'll be able to just defeat the logic of the machine messiah. So essentially he's doing a Kirk on him. So that's the way you defeat all machines, you know. Just do a Kirk logic problem, throw that at him, and that always works. Then with the wrap-up, we get the final page of Donna looking at, you know, holding the phone, you know, her mouth wide open as she's heard whatever news it is, and she drops the phone. She falls into Kyle's arm and just bursts into tears. It's You don't know what's going on with Donna from this point out. Uh, if you've read ahead, of course you do, but... If you don't, at the time when you picked up this book, this would be a real enticement to find out what's going on in the next issue. And it would definitely be hard to wait for the next month because, yeah, something just broke Donna up. Unfortunately, this dramatic scene had to be saddled with this really crappy storyline. Let's face it, the Machine Messiah was poo. Not a fun read. And not a fun character, and... Not the worst Green Lantern book. I still hold that there are others far worse, but yeah, it, it just wasn't good. I hate to say it. But, however, maybe we can find some good in the ads, and we'll take a look at some of the ads and the issues. The front and inside cover is an advertisement for the Ultimate Batman collection, including the first two, t the first two Batman movies and Batman Forever. And if you ordered these three movies, it also came with an exclusive Batman comic book introducing Mr. Freeze, free inside the Ultimate Batman collection. It looks like an issue of Detective Comics. I can't see the number, but it looks like someone is kicking a tied-up Batman off the top of a building. Hmm, how would he ever survive that? A few pages in, we get an advertisement for the Midway game War Gods. It's a pretty lame advertisement. It's basically a star field with a couple of white glowy eyes in the middle of it. It's got some gameplay. It looks like a typical Mortal Kombat type game. Never played it. Not really interesting. A few more pages in, we get another one of those almost Jack Davis co-cads where it's got this uh, soccer girl doing this sort of Pele backflip kick holding a coca-cola can or a coca-cola bottle in one hand and kicking the soccer ball into the goal in the other one i've tried to find out who this artist is it's a very stylized look and like i said it it's very reminiscent of jack davis the mad artist but i have no idea who it is it's really odd then in the middle of the book we've got an advertisement for kool-aid mega mountain gear which is i guess if you send in proofs of purchase from buying big old uh, bags of Kool-Aid Mountain Twist berry fruit drink sugary stuff, you could get a Microsoft game beyond the limit. It's a mountain climbing game. Yeah, uh, that sounds like a thing. Moving on, we've got more Batman goodness as it's the advertisement for the Batman and Robin Skybox Premium Card Set. Yep, if you wanted, uh, let's see, hobby-exclusive autograph cards and celluloid action cards from the movie Batman and Robin, you, you could get them. They were being sold. Then a few pages after that, it's Don't Ask Why, We Eat What We Like, and it's an advertisement for <sighs> Apple Jacks, which has these three kids hanging upside down, I guess from like a tree limb pouring apple jacks into their bowls and they're gonna eat them upside down because that's extreme maybe because the sugar rush and the blood rush to their head is just making them do goofy crap i'd put my money on the ladder you know i read an article a while back about people advertising sugary snacks and stuffs in comic books in this time and i kind of dismissed it but now looking at some of these ads, I don't wonder if there might have been a little bit on the head. Not saying that advertisers, uh, sorry, that advertisers should be able to advertise in comic books, but 
yeah, they might have a little point that advertising for Apple Jacks in a comic book magazine does kind of smack of, well, what was playing to your audience? Let's give it that. The next ad is for a set of pewter statues that they were selling at uh, Toys R Us. It was the DC Comics premiere set. One of them has an image of the Joker with the laughing fish guns. Another one is Superman number one with the image of Superman flying through the air. And then there's a, I think it might be a Neil Adams uh, Batman. Uh, it might not be Neil Adams. Uh, it's it's a modern age Batman book. But uh, some of these little, nice little pewter statues. Doesn't give prices up. I bet they were pretty pricey, but yeah. You get a $5 coupon when you come into Toys R Us if you buy them, so there you go. On the next page, there's an ad for Fighting Megamix, which I guess was a a mashup of Virtua Fighter 2 plus, plus Fighting Vipers, which were, at the time, pretty revolutionary 3D fighting games. Most games like Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter was 2D, where you fought on an even plane. The uh Games like Virtua Fighter had sort of polygonal graphics where you could actually move around a ring and kick people out of the ring. It was it was kind of neat. And the Sega Saturn, I'm pretty certain, took took advantage of those graphics-intensive games and played them pretty well. I, I remember those games being really fun. However, sadly, the uh, final splash page with Donna crying is kind of diminished by the advertisement on the next page of this bug-eyed goon pulling his teeth apart and smashing his nose with the advertisement at the bottom of the page saying another satisfied customer and it's an advertisement for mellow yellow the mountain dew wannabe so essentially if you drink mellow yellow you'll want to look like a freak good advertisement there and then how's this for synergy the back inside cover is an advertisement again for batman and robin Freezer Pops. Yes, you've got Mr. Freeze Freezer Pops with assorted flavors, like red, purple, orange, and blue. <sighs> Thankfully, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, well, no, I take that back. Arnold Schwarzenegger is on the cover of the box of Freezer Pops. Wow. And again, another advertisement for crap food. It's the Captain Crunch Bars, which was basically... I don't know what it was held together, but it was Captain Crunch cereal held together probably by gooey, syrupy, marshmallowy freakiness and made into, well, essentially like granola bars. Except, unlike granola bars, they probably were the least healthy thing you could probably eat. Plus, it's got some more of that weird artwork from the sort of same style of the Coca-Cola artist. Don't know what it is, and I don't know if I'd want to eat Captain Crunch bars. First of all, without milk, Captain Crunch is basically like eating gravel. Well, sugary sweet gravel, but gravel nonetheless. But that does it for ads, and that does it for this issue. Good riddance, Machine Messiah. We're glad that we'll never have to see you again. But after I take this break and play a couple of promos, we'll get back to seeing what's going on with Nort and Alan Scott and some other Green Lanterns in Green Lantern Quar Quarterly number two. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics, because as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. Akers Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The 
Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, the Schuster Herald Podcast, it's Superman, the Carousel Podcast, the Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back to take a look at Green Lantern Corps Quarterly number two. Let's go ahead and get right on into it. The first book, or the first chapter in this book, which was cover dated September 1992 and released on July 21st, 1992, was entitled The Book of Answers. The cover price, again, for the book was 250 US, 295 Canada, and a pound in the UK. The uh, writer for Book of Answers was Gerard Jones, penciler was M.D. Bright, anchor Romeo Tangal, letter Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, and editor Kevin Dooley. Surrounded by the floaty heads of Julius Schwartz, no, I mean the Guardians of the Universe, Green Lantern Hal Jordan delivers Evil Star to Oa to be once again placed inside a science cell. Hal asks if the Guardians can give some info on the whereabouts of the other escapees so he doesn't have to go on a galaxy-wide ass-beating tour, and the little blue imps are about as helpful as usual, which is to say not at all. Peeved about the situation, Hal flies over the yellow buildings of the planet to do some reading at the Book of Oa. There he meets up with Jon Stewart, who informs him that Chip has died and he was possessed by Sinestro. Wow. John even tops those bombshells with the info that he handed out four power rings to kids on the Mosaic roll. But with teases for readers to check out Green Lantern Mosaic out of the way, the duo get down to reading some stories from the Book of Oa. Now, I'm just going to go through these with general notes. I really don't have any specific ones except for a couple of these stories. Basically, this is a typical Bright and Tangle drawn story that ties in what was going on from the then-current Green Lantern titles especially Mosaic. They point out a lot of things, and there's a lot of editor's notes in here which tie into the Mosaic storyline. Uh, the art's really great. It's nice to see M.D. Bright and Romeo Tangal come again. Their line work is really fluid and crisp. It's nice-looking art here. The only thing I could nitpick about maybe would be the fact that the backgrounds are a little sparse. Oh, yeah, and the yellow buildings on Oa. I will never ever not be annoyed by that. Also, I might as well go ahead and, now while I'm at it, talk the cover. The cover is, uh, I think, done by Dusty Abel, and it's focusing in on the Alan Scott storyline, where Alan is flying through the, well, through the ether. It kind of looks almost like a who's who entry with uh, Alan Scott in the foreground doing something heroic, and then Hector Hammond in the uh, surprint back there. I guess spoilers, uh, he's going to be in the storyline. Plus, you've got the uh, sidebar, which has uh, Nort meets the Black Hole Gang and the history of Sector 2814 and much more. So it's a nice cover. And Dusty Abel, I, like I said, does a good job of drawing Alan Scott as an older man. However, we'll go ahead and get into the next story, which was the Alan Scott story. And it was entitled Where There's a Will. And it was written by Roger Stern, penciled, as I said, by Dusty Abel, inked by Steve Mitchell, lettered by Bob Lappin, and colored by Matt Webb. Sitting in the Scott home, Jenny Lynn Hayden and Todd Rice, a.k.a. Jade and Obsidian, watch the Expositional News Network story about the Golden Age Green Lantern as Alan and Molly look on and give commentary. The story recounts battles with Solomon Grundy, who wants some pants too, and the Icicle, and all the while the Scott family fondly looks back on that time. However, the wizard, who I thought was harassing the Fantastic Four, is watching the same broadcast and scheming. Back at the Scott household, the report claims that the idiot cabbie and GL sidekick Doiby Dickles, not Dickless, but Dickles, was found dead, and wanting to confirm the story, Alan heads out as the Green Lantern. Reaching the morgue, Alan is taken to see the body and confirms that it really is Doiby. But when he touches his friend's lifeless shoulder, his ring feedbacks on him and wraps him up in creepy hentai tentacles. 
Alan breaks free, but is sucked into a realm where he meets up with not giant-headed freak Hector Hammond, who for some reason has a power ring. The two fight it out, but in the end, Alan wins and is transported back to the morgue, where we find out that the body was actually a holographically disguised Hammond. Crisis averted, the Scott family go to the zoo, maybe to watch Donna Troy's son climb in the tiger cage, and they offer up cheesy morals for the end of the story. Now, this is one of the better stories in the book. I think it might be attributed to both Stern and Abdel doing a really good job of telling these stories. Roger Stern is obviously an incredible writer, and like I said, Abdel does a very good job of drawing the characters looking their age. Uh, there's a lot of history lessons in these, a lot of background on what was going on with the JSA and Alan Scott, but there's a bunch of new stuff that uh, keeps me interested as well. And like I said, as before, Abel does a really great job at depicting both Alan and Molly as viable old people. They're not, they're not youthful looking, but they're not decrepit looking. They look their age, but they look like, well, they look like active older people. It's, it's a nice artwork by here. I've got a few notes uh, on page 10. Not knowing and not really caring for the character of Doiby Dickles. I really wasn't too disappointed to find out at the beginning of the story that he might have passed away. But again, we do see Alan and Molly here embracing before they say goodbye. And it's great. It's it's nice to see that there were loving couples in the DC universe who would actively take apart in saying goodbye to each other before they go off to do something that might be upsetting. I guess again, all they... I'm really trying to say with this is f you, Dan Didio. You know, and looking back at the story, I think I misread one of the captions because I'm looking at the artwork here on page nine now, and it's pretty obvious that the character that I claimed was the wizard was the character that they were talking about in the Expositional News Network story. Something or some character that Alan Scott had fought in the Golden Age. And the character who's actually lounging around here is Hammond, because he's in his little hover chair, and it looks like he's got his... Well, you can tell the sort of side view, and from the uh, pencil-thin mustache that he's got in the uh, little inset panel on this page, that it's him. So, my bad that I thought that it was the wizard, and again, that I thought the wizard was supposed to be getting his ass handed to him by the Fantastic Four, but just me. But then moving on to page 13, Hector Hammond is out of his chair, he's walking, he doesn't have the freaky big forehead with the incredibly enormous receding hairline, and he's got a power ring. When the hell did this happen? I guess this is why these are kind of out of continuity, maybe inventory stories. Yeah, we'll chalk it up to that. Then my last real note for the story is on page 15. I really enjoy the fact that Alan taunts Hector Hammond by saying that he took down Brainwave, who was a lot like him. Brainwave was a character who had mental powers, and Hector obviously has the same thing, except he's just got the freakishly huge head. And if I remember, uh, this is all from uh, Scott and uh, Michael's Tales of the JSA, that Brainwave Jr. eventually joined the All-Star Squadron, or was it uh, the Young... Uh, it wasn't the Young All-Stars, but... I know that he was in some way associated with those characters, but I guess I'm just saying I miss Tales from the JSA. Wish they'd get back to it. But we're going to go ahead and move on to the next story. It was called Two Minute Morning, Two Minute Warning, sorry, and was written by Mark Wade. That's going to be awesome. Penciled by Ty Templeton, even better. Inked by Al Gordon and colored by Anthony Tolan. Assumedly, uh, Eddie Braganza and uh, Kevin Dooley were editors. On the planet of Augustine, I guess, a rookie Green Lantern tries in vain to stop a yellow combine from harvesting the sentient fruit of the planet. Unfortunately for the Lantern, his ring only has two minutes of power left, and no amount of time travel, pleading, or coercion can give the ring any more of a charge. In a last-ditch effort, the Lantern wills his ring to explode as he throws it into the chute of the combine, blowing it up real good. Crisis averted, the Lantern makes a desperate search for his missing ring. 
Now, this was a very simple synopsis, but this was a really fun little little story. Uh, the artwork is kind of neat by Templeton. He will go on to do, well, if he wasn't already doing, he would go on to do the Batman Adventures and I think the Superman Adventures as well, alongside Mike Paraback. And if you can kind of imagine Paraback's art style, it is kind of that. It's not cartoony. It's uh, very simplified. It's very stylized, but it's fun. And it's a neat story by Mark Wade, you know, basically focusing on the whole idea of the 24-hour ring charge. And unfortunately, this new ran lantern has completely forgotten about the 24-hour ring charge. And in the beginning of the story, he was knocked unconscious and he's near the end of the charge. So he's trying every possible way he can to get around it. You know, asking the ring to take him back into time, just asking if he can move to a different time zone so that, you know, it's... It kind of reminds me of uh, a scene in Gremlins 2 where they're postulating the ways that you can get around the uh, three rules for the Gremlins. Well, what if you're eating, uh, what if the Gremlin is eating something before midnight and he's on a plane and it flies across the timeline and it changes into mid past midnight and he's still eating, does he turn into a Gremlin there? You know, it's an interesting take and Mark Waite does a good job with this story. It was fun little, just throwaway story that I think really kind of worked in the book. The next story was The Lonely Man, and it was written by Gerard Jones, penciled by Tim Hamilton, inked by Gary Yap, lettered by Albert Guzman, and colored by Steve Matson. Braganza and Dooley were the editors. In a verdant field, a lone rifleman fires at a deer and misses the mark. The pioneer dejectedly looks on as what could have been ven venison for a month suddenly bounds away. But none of it matters to him anymore, especially after what he's been through. Years ago, he set out to blaze a trail across this great land with his loving wife at his side. But during childbirth, both the mother and child were lost, and since then, the man has barely left his home. One night, he witnesses a vision of his lost love beckoning him to come to us. Taking this as a sign, the man takes his rifle and prepares to end it all. However, the vision reappears and places a ring on his finger, telling him to use his will. The man does, and he and his faithful hound are whisked away to an alien world, where the former Green Lantern protector of it has fallen. The aliens beg the new lantern to protect him, and he charges into action, saving the planet. In the end, he finds that the voice that was calling him was not from his long-dead wife Spectre, but the wife of the former Green Lantern of Sector 2814. And with that, a new Green Lantern is born. Now, this is a really nice tale of a sort of Grizzly Adams, Frontiersman-type character becoming Green Lantern. Gerard Jones really feeds the story with a lot of religious metaphors. In fact, the character, and rightfully so, is very religious. In fact, he believes that you know, when he meets the aliens, that they are demons, and he often uh, you know, makes uh, references to prayer and prayers to God throughout the story. It's typical for the character. It's not heavy-handed, and it's a, it's a nice story. It never feels really preachy, and I think Jones is good at doing that. Um, speaking of the art, Hamilton's art is nice, and uh, it's cool that I, I think it's kind of nice that the character was given a companion in his hound. Uh, in fact, I think it's kind of neat that at the end of the story, that the hound is also a part of a part of his uh, Green Lantern family. Uh, when he goes out to do, when he's called away to do Green Lantern things, he still brings the hound around with him. And maybe that's just the dog lover in me. And it's nice to see a person who, who loves his pet. The next story was written by Doug Minch, and it was entitled The Trouble with Yellow. It was drawn by Paul Galassi, inked by Bogd Forak, colored by Steve Batson, and lettered by Albert Guzman. On a faraway planet, Greenlander Remus chases after some thieves, as an adolescent Teddy Ruxpin looks on. The thieves almost get away with it due to their weapons firing yellow beams, but Remus punches the snot out of them, ending the pursuit. Teddy asks what that was all about, and then he wants to read you a story. 
but he doesn't, and Remus explains that the ring's weakness to yellow with a story about goofy Muppet bugs. Yeah. Seems the bugs love themselves some squish berries. Really? Squish berries? Jesus. Anyhow, the best berries are all the way up high in the trees, and when flying bugs go up there, they get eaten, and their corpses get unceremoniously dropped to the ground. However, one of the Muppet bugs has chosen to be a Green Lantern, and as he flies up to take care of the insecticides, get it? Dead insects? Of course you do. He gets trapped in a, wait for it, a yellow spider web, <laughs> and eaten by a yellow spider. You know what? This story sucked. I'm going to come out and say it. This really disappoints me because from all I've heard, Doug Mensch is a really good writer. I, I remember listening to Andy and Michael's coverage of the Batman Nightfall series and them giving a decent amount of praise to Doug Mensch as a writer. This is bad. And the artwork is awful too. The characters in the stories have essentially Muppet faces. If you look at if you look at the bugs' faces, they look like Sesame Street Muppets. With the big googly eyes and the sort of ovoid Ernie type faces. It's awful. Plus there was a character in there that looked like a teenage Teddy Ruxpin. And I fing hate Teddy Ruxpin. Die in a fire, Teddy Ruxpin. However, the next and almost certain to be better story is about Nort, thankfully, and it's titled I'd Rather Nort. Get it? Yeah. It was written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe James. Uh, I couldn't get Staten. Uh, uh, inked by Andrew Peepoy, lettered by Albert Guzman, and co colored by Anthony Tola. At the asteroid Angus Finance and Loan Center, the band of three-eyed alien accountants are holding off an invading force bent on robbing them blind. Luckily, the bankers had called in for a Green Lantern to, in to reinforce them. Unluckily for them, the Green Lantern is Nord, with trusty sidekick Sax Girl at his side. Nord approaches the bankers and finds that they're being attacked by the Black Hole in the Wall Gang, and only Hal Jordan has successfully defeated them. Fortunately, Sax Girl has a solution, and Nord rings up a construct costume of Hal to conceal his doggy nature. Unfortunately, Nort doesn't have the ring-slinging skills that Hal does, and despite getting the upper hand a few times, Nort gets the stuffing knocked out of him, and eventually revealing that the Hal Jordan costume was a disguise. However, this causes the Black Hole in the Wall gang to quake in fear and ask for forgiveness. And as the gang remove their helmets, we see that the Marauders were actually bipedal pussycats, who are deathly afraid of the awesome doggyness of Nort. <laughs> oh lord. Again, I love Nort and I love these stories. Uh, Scott Lobdell is taking a kind of humorous take on this. Now, I have no idea if the Black Hole in the Wall gang were a group that Hal Jordan took on before, but even if they didn't, it's a nice little play on this. And the reveal at the end is actually kind of a good reveal. Uh, the fact that Nort is the one who's going to be effectively taking this taking this group down simply because he's a dog is is rather humorous and uh, it's a better twist than pretty much anything M Night Shyamalan has come up with in the past oh ten years. Anyway, I've got a few more notes on this. Uh, I'm kind of disappointed that Joe Staten wasn't back for the art, uh, but. James is a decent substitute, and like I said, Lobdell does a good job at providing some really humorous dialogue. Uh, my first note is on page 46, Nort in the Hal, Jost Hal Jordan disguise is hilarious, because Nort is trying to be as physically, well, posturing as Hal as you think Hal would be, but the thing is, he forgot to cover up his ears, so you've got essentially a very... Uh, posed with his hands on his hips, you know, flying through the air, Hal Jordan, with giant floppy doggy ears. In fact, he kind of looks like one of the mutants from Tank Girl, so if you can imagine that, that's kind of what he looks like. Then on page 47, panel 3, we get some classic 
uh, the leader just missing the forest for the trees, as the uh, leader of the Black Hole in the Wall Gang is looking at Hal Jordan and realizing that something is wrong with him. And one of the uh, minions points out, uh, maybe it's the big ears, and the leader's going, no, it's something else, something I just can't put my finger on. It's it's a classic comedy bit, but it's done really well here. There's some really good humor in here. Uh, Lobdell, I guess, can do good humor when he's not destroying the character of Starfire by making her a whore. Page 50, panel 4. Uh, some more comedic stuff here, as Nort actually proves that he's kind of a decent Green Lantern here, but he's doing it in a comedic way. As the uh, Black Hole in the Wall Gang begins to fire their weapons in them at him, he plugs up all the barrels of the weapons with ring construct fingers in there. So it's the typical, you put the finger in the barrel of the gun and the gun's going to explode on you. It's, it's done for humorous effect, but it also shows that Nort can, if need be, hold his own as a Green Lantern. Then on page 53, panel 3, again, yes, it is kind of a goofy ending and kind of a stretch that the villains were cats, but like I said before, every once in a while, I dig a nice goofy twist ending. And it's just fun. And I think this actually ends this story on an, on, on an up note, because there were some stories in here, I'm looking at you, Doug Minch, that were really not very good. But we get the final book in here uh, with Hal Jordan closing the book and talking about the stories in it, but completely ignoring the story about Nort, and he and Jon Stewart flying off saying that even though they're Green Lanterns, and for all their differences, that's the thing that makes them one. So overall, the second Green Lantern Corps quarterly had a few missteps, had a few mass stories, had one in particular really awful story, one that I just wish I didn't have to read, but it had some gold in there too. The Nort story was great, and Alan Scott was really good as well, so... And it's also nice to see M.D. Bright drawing the uh, Green Lantern characters as well. Uh, I'm glad I'm getting a chance to read these, and I'm glad I'm getting a chance to share these with you. Of course, next time out, I'll be sharing more stuff with you, as I'll be talking about Green Lantern number 90, where Kyle goes back to his old haunt, the Heretic Club, where, if you remember from Green Lantern number 50, that's where he got the ring. Plus, we'll be meeting a friend of his who has a problem. And it becomes a very special episode of Green Lantern. Plus, we're going to cover another issue of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, number three. And hopefully the stories will be mm, a little better than what we've got this time. We'll have to see. But I hope you'll come back next week. Thanks, everyone, for downloading and listening. And be sure to come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast sponsored by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Bye, folks. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract but it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Sticks and their song, 
Mr. Roboto, off their 80s concept album, Kilroy Was Here. Yeah. If you'd like to buy this song, or buy the album that the song is off of, the best place to go get it would be Amazon.com. And again, the best way to get to Amazon.com would be to go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to the website, 2TrueFreaks.com, up in the upper left-hand corner is a link to Amazon.com. Click on that link and you'll be transported directly to Amazon where you can buy either the album, Kilroy Was Here, the song, Mr. Roboto, or a myriad of other things. Electronics, games, music, whatever your heart desires. And every time you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, your purchase price, which will not be affected, will give a little bit back to the 2TrueFreaks website. So make sure if you're going to be doing shopping on the internet, do your shopping at Amazon.com and do your shopping through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.